Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. So glad that you're able to be here. A few folks are missing today. I, I know of a few that said they were going to be away for one reason or another. But we're glad you made it. Turn with me to John chapter 6. We want to remember at our prayer time today, uh, we want to remember their, our countrymen in Florida who have undergone such a severe storm and destroyed so much property and so many lives lost, so many families suffering. So remember them in prayer at their closing time. We don't know what calamities may come upon us from day to day. But we trust in the Lord to meet our need no matter what happens. And he is able to sustain us and to meet those needs as we have well seen in this passage of scripture. Jesus has demonstrated his power. To meet circumstantial needs and difficulties by miraculously feeding a crowd of 20,000 people with just two little fish and five little small biscuits. It was indeed a miracle that is unparalleled to this point in his public ministry. The people on whom this miracle was performed, delighted in the fact that their hunger was satisfied, but they were only interested in the physical aspect of their hunger. They had no interest in the bread that Christ would give them that would satisfy their soul. Many years ago, as Explorers sailed the Pacific. They came upon the island, the, the big island of uh, the, um, the island of Oahu in, in Hawaii. And from a distance, they could see Diamond Head Crater. Diamond Head got its name because those explorers, in viewing that mountain from a distance, saw glistening glistenings of light in the in the hillside of of the crater of the mountain. And from a distance. They thought that they, the mountain was full of diamonds. But they were very disappointed when they finally got to the mountain and found that those glistening, what they thought were diamonds, were only calcite deposits, just little crystals of glass in the mountain, worthless, worth nothing. The people... On, in Jesus' day that saw the miracle were like the explorers. They only saw it from a distance physically. They did not see it for what it actually was, what it actually taught. To them, it was just simply calcite crystals, worthless rock. The passage before us reveals a very stark contrast between those that are true disciples and those who are false ones. 
Throughout the New Testament, false disciples are specified by various illustrations. For example, they are described as tares in Matthew chapter 13, plants that have heads that look like wheat but have no center. They're just empty shells. Jesus said they were worth nothing more than to be bundled up and burned in the fire. In Matthew chapter 13, again, there was fish that were caught in a net, a great number of fish. And when they brought them to the bank, they separated the good fish from the bad fish, and the bad fish were thrown away. In chapter 25, Jesus condemns the goats on his left, divided them from the sheep on his right, and condemned those goats, which were the false disciples, He condemned them to eternal punishment. In Luke 13, there were those that were left outside at the feast. In chapter 25 of Matthew, the foolish virgins that were shut out from the wedding feast. And in chapter 25 again, there were those useless slaves who buried their master's talents in the ground. And when the master came, he cast them, those un fruitful servants into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. These these are these people are called apostates, who they are people who eventually leave the fellowship of believers. They manifest an evil, unbelieving heart by abandoning the living God. And they continue to willfully sin after having received the knowledge of the truth. And they fall away from the truth to everlasting destruction. They are on the broad road that leads to eternal destruction and eternal death. According to the Lord's teaching. True discipleship is defined by Christ. In Luke chapters 9 and 14 and Matthew 20, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, anyone putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. There must be a death to the former life. John will eventually say in chapter 12 of this gospel, whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Only true disciples are willing to submit to Christ in all of life with all that they have. And they are those that do not turn back. They are those that do not defect. They are those that continue to believe and continue to follow, come what may. For they know that their Lord is good and that he will not let them down. This being said, we see a lessening of enthusiasm for following the Lord in this chapter. Very hard things are going to be said by Jesus that reveal the difficulty of true faith in God through His Son. However, before we get to that, we really need to 
expound on this miracle that took place after the feeding of the 5,000. The miracle that was performed by the Lord that is generally called Jesus walking on the water. We'll be referring to Mark's gospel and to Matthew's gospel as well in some things because John does not include everything that took place during this miracle. So let's begin at verse 16. Let's read the text through verse 21. And that'll be what we look at this morning. Chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless this time. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come once again to worship. And now we worship by expounding upon your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us freedom and power through the Holy Spirit to preach this word in such a way that will bring you glory and will do us good and will convict those who do not know you so that they might come to have eternal life through your Son, Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen. We find that the disciples, at Jesus' strong suggestion, have gotten into their boat and are headed across the sea to Capernaum. In fact, they didn't decide this. Jesus decided that they should get into the boat and leave while he went up on the mountain to pray. We find that in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Capernaum was the place where Peter lived and where Jesus had based his Galilean ministry. It was so to speak, his headquarters. Jesus went up on the mountain to pray and to get away from the crowd, to have some solitude while his disciples were rowing their way to Capernaum across the sea. The time came for Jesus to rejoin his disciples But this caused a problem. How could he get to the other side where they were going? He had no boat to go, to go in. They had taken the only boat. If he walked around the lake, like the people did in, in the early part of this chapter, coming to see him, then he would run into the crowds again. And by the, by this time, the crowds 
If you recall, they wanted, they were wanted to take him by force and make him king. This crowd was whipped up into a mob frenzy. This wasn't just a, this wasn't just, oh, why don't you be our king? They were, they wanted to literally force him to be their king. And it wasn't because they loved him. It was because they loved the food that he had given them. And they loved the fact that he had healed their diseases. And so if he walked around the lake, he would encounter the crowd. So Jesus set out on foot across the lake walking on the water. This would have been the shortest distance. And it would certainly evade the crowd because they would not be able to follow him. I asked myself, why this miracle? Why is this miracle... I mean, he's just fed 20,000 people, healed their diseases. Why does John mention this miracle that's placed in there almost seemingly out of place? Because if you skipped over it, it would tie in very nicely at the end of verse 15. And if you just put verse 15 going into verse 22, you would have... The con, the flow of Jesus feeding the people, and then he goes into the discourse on the bread of life from heaven. But we have this miracle put in there. Why was it important that Jesus be seen <coughs> walking on the water, even if that were only witnessed by his disciples alone? Which it was. The reason, I think, is that they had seen the power of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. They had seen the power of Jesus healing the sicknesses and diseases of the people. They had seen him take a little bit of food and feed a lot of people. And now Jesus is going to show them his power over another segment of creation. That is, over the natural part of creation, over the elements, over gravity, this miracle would also elicit the proper and relevant or reverent response of true disciples, which we see that it did in the end. Of the three accounts of this miracle found in Matthew, Mark, and John, John has the briefest mention of it. He only mentions the aspect of they were their fear. They were frightened as they were on the sea. He, he makes little mention of anything else. So in the dark... The disciples are rowing across the lake. Very seldom do you see in Scripture any of them hoisting sails to to sail across the sea. Uh, Generally, they row wherever they go. They're rowing in their boats. Darkness in in this passage is the Greek word skatia, which is... uh, It means a literal darkness, 
14 out of the 16 times that this word dark is used, it is speaks of spiritual darkness. Here it speaks of the actual physical darkness of being out on the sea. In other words, it was a dark, it was a darkness that there was no light. They're rowing on a dark sea. The, the moon is not shimmering across the water. The stars are not reflecting. They're, they're, they're rowing in the dark. I think a very fearful thing at the least would be to be out on a, a large body of water in the dark, have no lights to guide you. They ro- they rowed and rowed and rowed. They were rowing. They rowed about three or four miles. The Greek text has, they rowed 25 or 30 stadia, which is a, a Greek measurement of about 607 feet. If you add it all up, they rowed about three or four miles. They're out in the middle of the lake. Now imagine yourself in a small boat with only oars to row with, out in the middle of Malax Lake at night. There's no moon and no stars. That would be scary. These, these men were professional fishermen. They knew what it was to be out on the water all night fishing. Rowing would not have been necessarily a difficult thing for them. However, a storm arose with strong winds that whipped up the water, making it difficult to maintain any kind of speed in rowing, not to mention the increased danger that's involved here. In fact, Matthew says the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. If there's one place I don't want to be, it's on a boat when there are large waves crashing against it. Mark says he saw, Jesus saw them. He's up on the mountain. He looks down at them. He can see them supernaturally. He can see them straining at the oars, Mark says, for the wind was against them. See, we don't, Sometimes we don't realize the, just how these storms come on the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. They were common because in the north, at the north of the Sea of Galilee, there was a range of mountains. And that the wind would come down from those mountains. This lake is really about the size of Malax. I think Malax might be a little larger. The uh, Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and 6 miles wide. But it's surrounded on the north by these by the mountains. One writer describes it like this. The Sea of Galilee lies in a deep hollow of volcanic origin, bounded on either side by steep ranges of hills rising above the water level from 1 to 2000 feet. The difference of temperature at the top And the bottom of these hills is very considerable. Up on the tablelands above, the air is cool and bracing. Down at the margin of the lake, which lies 700 feet below the sea level of the ocean, the climate is tropical. 
The storms caused by this inequality of temperature are tropical in violence. They are like a tropical storm. They come sweeping down the ravines upon the water. And in a moment, the lake, calm as glass before, becomes from end to end white with foam whilst the waves rise into the air in columns of spray. This can happen instantaneously on the Sea of Galilee. We see many times that there were storms. We find another instance where Jesus was in the stern of the boat asleep and a storm came and they the disciples are in fear of their lives that the boat is going to sink. Jesus seeing this and knowing this continued through the night in prayer while the disciples are out in the midst of the lake rowing for their lives because of this northerly wind. This was a storm That was planned by the Father, executed by the Spirit, and engaged by the Son. It was designed to show the disciples that nothing in heaven or earth was outside of the control of the Son of God. Nothing. He is the sovereign of the universe. He can create Out of nothing, he can multiply little, he can heal diseases, he can change water into wine, and he can walk on the water. The disciples were already confused and frustrated and disappointed that Jesus had sent them away. And now they are yet in another storm fighting for their lives. Should they have been worried? Honestly, I can't be, I can't be too hard on them. Because I would have been worried. Looking around at waves going high and the boat being tossed like a cork on the water. I would have been afraid. Robert Constable writes, the disciples went from the thrill of great success to the agony of great danger. The feeding of the 5,000 was a lesson. And Jesus walking on the water was the test following the lesson. Look, understand that when, when you have a spiritual high, when you have a spiritual victory, don't let down your guard. Because the test is coming next. It's coming right on the heels of it. And you'll have to deal with what comes next. And are you going to look to Christ? Are you going to look to Him to take care of it and take care of you? Would they pass this test? How many times does the Lord come through for us and we delight in the victories and the answers of prayer only to find ourselves in the midst of a test that brings anguish and turmoil to our soul? Do we remember that He is with us? Do we remember that He will meet our need? Or do we despair and think 
Lord, you have forgotten me. Where are you? Jesus never took his eye off of his disciples. From the time they left the shore, rode out to, on the lake, got out into the middle of the lake, and the storm came, he never took his eye off of them. He saw them. He knew exactly what was happening. Can we, the, the question is, can we trust Christ? Can we trust him? The answer to that is yes, we can trust him. We can trust him with everything that we have and we can trust him with our very lives. Warren Wearsby writes, the Lord has to balance our lives. Otherwise we will become proud and then fall. The disciples had experienced a great joy in being part of a thrilling miracle Now they had to face a storm and learn to trust the Lord more. Every time we go through something, we come out on the other side, we've been tried, we've been refined. Peter says it's like being refining gold. The, the, The dross has to be scraped off the top of the molten gold. And the more it's heated, the more dross comes out until finally it is a pure Peace. The disciples have now rowed approximately nine hours. Nine hours. I remember rowing one time on, we were in man camp in a canoe and, uh, I think it, I was years ago. I can't remember where that was. I think it was at Crescent Lake maybe. We went down several lakes, portaged across to some others and and uh, by the time we headed back, the wind was coming out of the north, and it was all I could do just to keep up in rowing, rowing, rowing. I don't know how far we went, but I swore I'd never get in another canoe after that. <laughs> and I haven't. These disciples have been rowing now for nine hours. It was the fourth watch of the night. Mark chapter 6 verse 48 says it was the fourth watch. The Roman night was divided into four watches. There was the first watch from 6 to 9 p.m. The second was from 9 to midnight. The third was midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they're in the third watch of the night. That means it's 3 a.m. And they're out on the lake. The wind is blowing. The waves are crashing. They're rowing for their lives. They're straining at the oars just to try to make any kind of headway. It is now 3 and 3 a.m. And they see Jesus as he came walking on the sea. Mark tells us that he would have passed them by. That doesn't mean that he was going to go by them without them seeing him. It means that he approached so that they saw him walking on the sea. In other words, he wanted them to see him. 
They needed to see him coming to them and to their aid. It wouldn't have done any good for them had he walked past in the darkness and they not seen him. That would not have helped them had he gone unnoticed. They needed to have their faith tested. They needed to see that he was there in the midst of the storm. Now many have asked, what what did that look like, Jesus walking on the water? It it wasn't some kind of supernatural skimming across the water, like he's on a little surfboard. It wasn't floating. He didn't just float. He was actually walking on the water. The language tells us exactly what it was like. He uses the Greek word, little Greek word epi, which means on the surface of something. So it means he made contact with the water. Our Lord walked up the slope of one wave and down the slope of the next on top of the water as though he were walking on concrete. Isn't that amazing? This was... The messianic fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 43 verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Jesus evidently created some kind of anti-gravitational force. Enabling him to set aside the most basic of physical laws. Gravity. We all know gravity exists. And we all know how forceful it can be. We have all stepped off the edge of a pier or a rock or a boat into the water and immediately we're plunged into the water. As the creator, he alone can supersede The natural laws that he created and extend them or arrange them in whatever way he needs to. It seems that the Lord had in his plan to wait until what would appear to them to appear to me to be the last minute. Isn't that the way that seems like the Lord works most of the time? We come up to the last minute, just right at the edge of a calamity or a catastrophe or some kind of bad event or taking place and right up to the edge of it. And then the Lord steps in. He does that because he receives the most honor and the most glory when he comes to the rescue of his saints At the last minute. It was in this light. That Abraham cried. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right. When he was going to destroy Sodom. Gomorrah. The five cities of the plain. Will not the judge of the earth. Do what's right. 
Job's trust in God's ability to do right echoed when he said, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. God works to make his name great in the affairs of men. But he does that by waiting many times to the last minute or beyond. Think of Lazarus. When Jesus and his disciples were away and he got news that Lazarus had died. And he waited four days. Four days to come to the scene. What about Jairus' little daughter? She was dying and she finally died before he got there and he went in and raised her up. Jesus could have calmed this storm as he was watching the disciples from the mountain. He could have calmed the storm right from right there. But that would not have accomplished his purpose. The next thing we see happening in this miracle is the disciples' fear. By nature, most people are fearful. And there must have been fear from the waves and from the storm. I cannot imagine these disciples not being afraid that their, sh- that their little boat would go down probably in a fishing boat, that it would go down in the sea and they would all be lost. There must have been fear in in their hearts from that. But there was another fear that gripped them. It was the fear of seeing Jesus walking on the water because they thought... That they had seen a ghost or a spirit. And they were afraid. It is one thing to be afraid of natural fears. It is another thing to be afraid of supernatural ones. For many times natural fears can be evaded. But what do you do with a supernatural that one cannot fight against? That one cannot defend themselves against that which is or has no defense. Imagine the eeriness of the darkness. The storm and the wind blowing. The waves crashing. And then, on top of all of that, to see a ghostly figure walking On the water. Matthew chapter 14 says they cried out. They shrieked in fear. This wasn't just a a fear like, oh, oh, I'm afraid. They were trembling. They were crying out. They were shrieking. And just as they were about to be overcome in fear, they hear the most wonderful words. That anyone could ever hear. Don't be afraid. It is I. It's I. 
Are there any sweeter words in any language than those? When in the grip of fear, we hear our Savior say, it's, it's me, don't be afraid. Some of us have experienced a similarity of that kind of fear when we, when someone has approached us and we don't know who it is and then we hear them say, oh, it's, it's me. Don't shoot. Don't sick your dog on me. It's me. And we feel that relief that comes in knowing a familiar face or a familiar voice that is un, that is not threatening. What comfort, what relief they must have felt at that moment that Jesus was there and all is well. Now we see in the aftermath of such a trial and fear the phrase in verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat. I bet they were. Glad to take him into the boat. So there was a glad reception, a joyful reaction, and a peaceful reassurance in the disciples at that moment. Oh, it's the Lord. Can I get in the boat? Sure, come on in. We're glad to have you here. And then something else happened. That they did not expect. Jesus is now in the boat. And nothing can possibly happen to them. While he is there with them. Nothing can happen. They can't go down. Because Jesus is in the boat. And that's a great lesson for us. Because nothing can happen to us until and unless Jesus commands it to happen. This is why Stonewall Jackson sat up on his horse, cannonballs flying by, bullets whizzing by. Because he knew that he could not be killed until it was God's time for him to die. It's the same for you and me. It doesn't matter what we are in life or what we do in life. We are, we belong, if we belong to Jesus Christ, He is the sovereign over our lives. This is true for every believer in Christ. Nothing can befall us that Jesus does not allow. And in allowing it, He will be with us to come to our aid, whether in life or death. He will come to our aid. And then the second miracle happened here. Sort of a Star Trek event, if you will. They dematerialized from the water and rematerialized on the shore. What must that have felt like? Because it was a A supernatural moving of the boat and the disciples to their destination in an instant. 
Can you imagine? One moment you're on the sea. The next moment you're at the shore. This was why the miracle is important. It was important because Jesus had to show his disciples that he was in charge of every facet of their lives. Not just what they ate, not just what they did, not just where they went, but everything. Even moments of danger, he would be with them. And he would rescue them according to his will. They can trust him. They can put their lives in his hands. And he will do them good. So after they entered the boat, miraculously transported to their destination, they arrive at the place God had planned for them to be, and he will do exactly the same for you and me. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. He will see us through to the end. Whether that means in death or in life. This is very interesting because now, as we carry on in John 6, we see that Jesus gives a a lengthy discourse on the bread of life, which was the intended purpose of the feeding of the 5,000. And so the next day comes and the people have now found him. And that's where we go next time. What does he say to them that is so disturbing that by the end of this chapter, almost all of them walk away and follow him no more? We shall see. In the meantime, we trust the Lord for every event in life. We know that he is the ruler and we are glad that he is in our boat. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. I want to make a couple of announcements. Um, Chris, if you would go to the next slide there for me.